Hi, I'm Trace Nelson. I'm a chef and a writer and the founder of BlackColonialHistory.com. A little over two years ago, Clay Williams and Colleen Vincent had this idea. They've both been working at the James Beard House, sort of tangential to the food world. And the vantage point gave them this bird's eye view of the visibility of Black food creatives. Colleen had been working at the Beer House for years, um, advocating for and supporting Black creators coming through. And Clay, as a photographer and photojournalist, had been capturing the images of all of the house dinners, but specifically the Black food events. And his images were so stunning, it kind of memorialized this growing collection of Black chefs who were entering that space. And so being tangential to food, they would find themselves out and about throughout the city, different industry events, and would gravitate naturally to one another. And like Black folks do when we are in predominantly white spaces, we sort of collectively gravitate. And so over the years, we see the same faces and kinfolk and skinfolk in the crowds. And so it became sort of apparent to them that seeing folks every now and then in an industry event is very different than being in community. And the spark hit two years ago, they formalized and launched Black Food Folks. And at the time it was wildly revolutionary. It was the space that honored and lifted up and supported Black creators. The Instagram feed had all these gorgeous images of perfectly lit Black folks. And it became this hub. It became this kind of meeting place. And it wasn't just digital because that same energy that had started um, at these industry events kind of grew into branded Black food folks events. And we would have happy hours and folks who you would see in passing became um, collaborators and kinfolk and there was a newsletter that was all these things it was job postings and good news and celebrating wins things were going along beautifully top of 2020 that the one-year anniversary party it felt kinetic we had been starting to think about in-depth workshops and sort of what that year of building could look like if we activated the community in tangible ways. So we um, were going to have these learnings and, and then COVID happens. And in a lot of ways, that year of level setting, that year of um, building community in this really intentional, formalized way made us uniquely ready for COVID in some ways that when we were all quarantined, digital spaces became this beautiful, direct connection to one another in ways that even um, that last year of person-to-person connection couldn't really be. And so April of 2020, we took to Instagram formally. We started doing community check-ins. And it was at first just an opportunity to just put eyes on community, right? It was, how are you? How are you holding up? But it really quickly grew into storytelling. It grew into having a platform that allowed chefs to show the world who they were and tell their full story in their own voice. On our Instagram feed, you can watch these 200 plus episodes of all manner of programming. On Mondays, we had the brilliant Mavis J. Sanders and Cicely Sierra 
doing a program called The Drink Tank. And it was Cicely and Mavis's amazing chemistry, talking about popular culture, about random news, about problematic people. It was a level set, but it was also super smart and super savvy. And they came on every week asking us to put aside troubles to um, sit with them for usually an hour plus of kikis and fun and joy. As black people, it's one, where is your grocery store? And that is something that I'm struggling with here in New York. And like, how do you get access to that? What is very stressful, especially if you live in a community with older people. So that was like our way of like supporting people was like, here's our Restaurant Depot card, here's our Jetro card, and everybody gonna pass this thing around and go get what they need. So it's like things like that, like how can you... We got to hear from Jackie Summers, who's been in the beverage space for decades, who um, is leading in the beverage space, trying to demand more equity and inclusion for people of color in that industry. There was Aretha Itar, who's one of the most stunning writers and brilliant young chefs um, working today. And she would ask the hard and complicated questions of chefs that she admired. There was Cassandra Rosario, who is a proprietor and founder of Food Before Love, which is this brilliant travel blog. And she's a curious consumer and travels the world, taking us on these journeys. She alone should be um, on television, on someone's network, producing her own original content. But she also is a brilliant PR and marketing mind. She brought us conversations that ask us to think outside of the sort of culinary world and think of all of the spaces and ask us to think about all the support sides of our industry, the marketers, the PR, the media folks. David and Tanya Thomas, um, Chefs David and Tanya Thomas, um, based in Baltimore. Chefs, restaurateurs, amazing couple with um, decades of love and partnership will come on Wednesdays talking to all manner of folks, but most urgently they, they talk to other powerhouse couples who were running restaurants and businesses and farms. And it was so interesting to watch them talk through um, what partnership really looked like or may know the right foods to eat. Okay, you know the difference between rice and peas and peas and rice. Because some don't know. You know, you can, if you flow with somebody else's arroy y gandules. You know, it's necessary to know what these foods are. No, it's not chicken curry. That's a whole nother island saying that language. It's curry chicken. Jamaicans frame things in a whole other way. I needed to make sure I was leaving a repository of works that if they in fact cannot get to the island, they can get to YouTube. We had everyone from Jessica Harris to Rahana Martinez in conversation in some form. And so it was intergenerational. It was multidisciplinary and it was joyful. Uh, so these conversations exist as this repository for Black thought and Black life. And I think the thing that I'm, I've been so impacted by is that the generosity 
of these folks to come to the table in a time where in some cases your business was struggling, in some cases where you had lost your job altogether, um, there was still this power of resilience. Um, and also the power of digital spaces that, that content is now archived. And so the platform folks Instagram feed is not this living memorial of a global event, but it's also kind of manifesto around the spirit and the function of Black food folks. Over the summer, um, as we watch police brutality perpetuate itself and watch George Floyd be murdered before our eyes, in community, it was more of the same, but it did feel different. It felt particularly raw in a time of of a Trump era. It felt particularly urgent because we had just spent six months at home and to have the collective national gaze on this kind of violence, this kind of treachery felt like to some folks um, a reckoning. It's a word that we use a lot, but it's at least fair to say it got our country shaken up enough. We started to refocus. And so um, partnerships started to happen. All of a sudden, the country's gaze is on Black folks doing what Black folks always do and redefining what, what support looked like. And so companies like Discover, wanted to help partner in the food space um, because restaurants, again, were being decimated. And so um, one of the first partnerships was Discover. But late in the summer, um, Talenti came on board and offered Black food folks the seed money um, that got turned into micro grants for 10 organizations doing amazing work. But with the rest of the money, Clayton Colleen said, let's get formal. To focus that money and focus those resources be in line with the spirit of storytelling that that past year had birthed, they started to think about podcasting. I know you're thinking, who needs another podcast? But it's a really particular form of storytelling. For me, podcasting is the WPA narratives, right? It's hearing in, in a person's own voice their story memorialized in a way without that doesn't have distractions. I've been leading conversations via Instagram for a year now and am ready to bring you this narrative story of Black people in the dessert world. Black desserts. I've been fascinated by desserts, the sort of pastry worlds for the whole of my career. It's a space that gets discounted or dismissed very often. Um, Some of our guests talk about the fragility of pastry programs in the dining space and how because we don't think about and know enough about the rigor and the care that gets put into the pastry world, oftentimes we disregard how important the dessert world is to the food space. The dessert world in Black life is critical. So much of colonial history is dependent on detective work because we didn't always have records to think through agency in the food space is a lot of guesswork and a lot of inference but pastry and so the dessert world 
is disproportionately well kept in terms of records um, because pastry recipes typically have to be written down because they're formulas. The evidence of of black excellence is, is oftentimes found in the pages of in the on the note cards of black desserts. So, with that sort of eye towards history um, through the lens of black culture. I'm so excited to have you here. This collection of chefs from all walks of the dessert world tell you their stories. So yes, I, I think I've always have had an entrepreneurial spirit. My mom uh, always did something else, a side hustle, and she was she was admin, mm-hmm. secretary, whatever, whatever. But she always did something else. So you know, be it owning property and getting rent, or selling somebody else's home-based business stuff, or whatever. She always had something else going on besides her paycheck. So I, I grew up with that, right? We're talking to educators and executive chefs and chocolatiers and everyone in between. And they all give themselves over to this conversation so freely. This was about five years old. I was in kindergarten and grandma said, well, if you want to lick the bow, you got to help me. Yeah, you know, so she taught me how to bake from scratch at five years old. And I thought it was the most amazing thing because everybody loved grandma and they loved her food. And when people would eat her food, their faces would change. This expression on their face was amazing. And I wanted that same feeling. And who at five years old would understand that? And so, and plus I wanted to lick the bowl. That was like one of the major things, you know? Folks were so generous with their time in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of the precarious nature of restaurants and food-based businesses. They took their time and talked with me so openly about their fears, about challenges, about their origin stories. It was definitely a race issue, especially once you broke down... Um See, especially having grown up going to private school and knowing the rules of private school, like you can only dress this way, you can only wear your hair this way. They mm. had rules like that for that hotel, for their for their employees. So when I worked there, I had to keep my hair covered because I always kept my hair braided. And I wasn't mm. about to take my braids out and like get a perm because <laughs> they don't like the fact that I wear braids. I realized that the food system was broken. I realized that working in the city, working in hotels, working in, in, in fine dining restaurants, I realized our food system is broken. And I wanted to change the way I operated in it. And I wanted to change the way I view myself within it and what people mm. view the food system as. And if I wanted to make that change, I needed to do it from the inside out instead of standing on the outside saying that it's broken. I'm proud that you get to hear from some profoundly excellent people who are doing work that surprises and delights. They do it without recognition in lots of ways. This series is a love letter to them and to all the pastry chefs who came before them. This series to me is really about juxtaposition, about the legacy of Black desserts being 
preserved and fortified by this brilliant collection of Black folks, of Black voices. I think about the world through a very particular Black lens and and beholden to history because I think that it allows us to see so clearly a pathway forward. And I hope this series sort of exists in this this perfect jewel box of a way, this preserved narrative that exists and affirms all of the amazing voices who have given us their time and their spirits. I'm so excited for people to hear these stories in the chef's own voices that we create this space as this extension of Black food folks that makes room for the unvarnished truth of people's stories about being Black in this work. I didn't want the series to be heavy-handed in terms of tropes or narratives that's just sort of supported this sort of pervasive trauma narrative, but I definitely wanted to give room for folks to be able to show themselves and tell their stories um, as fully as possible. And in so much as we maybe don't think about the lives that create these delicious, beautiful pieces of art, that hearing these stories and, and sort of listening to the joy and the trauma and the hurt and the wins and triumphs, so just all of, the, all of the good bits, all of the complicated bits. But hearing from these brilliant artists in their own words, that maybe you think a little more, a little deeper when you're engaging with, with this art. And it's so timely that we end up with an actual baker's dozen of conversations. I mean, maybe that's just sort of a sign of something fortuitous, but to hear from this baker's dozen this expansive diasporic story has been amazing. I'm so proud of how it's gonna, of how it all came together and that you all get to to share in these stories with us. So yeah, here we go. I'm Therese Nelson the host of Black Desserts and we are we are, we are black food black folks. folks.